What is it that gives you confidence? Because there is every reason in the world, humanly speaking, to lack confidence. There are many opportunities, as we have even observed in the recent weeks through our psalm series, for you and for I to be so paralyzed by the chaos that we encounter in this world that we grow weary. What gives you confidence? What gives you confidence in times of distress when sickness has impacted your family? What gives you confidence in those times of interpersonal conflict or dysfunction in relationships, injustices that you may have experienced or encountered? What gives you confidence? What gives you confidence in being a citizen of the United States of America? There's a lot of good things here compared to many places we could observe in the world. There's a lot of evil things that are here as well. Is it the economy that you look to and depend upon? Is it the education system? Is it the you consider other things that we experience in just our country alone, the widespread acceptance of sin. As I prayed earlier, the sad realities that we see every day around us or choose not to see so much, evil that exists, natural disasters, suffering. And we could go down the list. We could just we could spend the entire however long they give me to preach. I don't know how long that is. But we could list event after event, circumstance after circumstance. It's not one thing. It's many things. Not to mention when you think about the world, what is it that gives you confidence? Honestly, when you look at the day in which we live. I would argue that it's not much different than it was hundreds and thousands of years ago. Sin is still present, manifest in different ways, different flavors, if you will. But there's not much that seems very encouraging. And if we're careful, if we're not careful, we could could easily grow discouraged and Weary. And what makes it all the more difficult is that we seem so powerless to do anything about what we encounter. Have you ever felt that way? You you see injustice, you see sin, you want it to change, but you're just one person. Where do you turn? Turn to the government for help. Elected officials, you turn to the military. Financial institutions, education. Certainly there's help in these areas and in these 
groups of people, but when it comes down to it, where do you find help? Where do you find hope? Where do you find confidence? And as we begin this series today, we begin with the person of God. And my whole point this morning from Isaiah 46 and from other passages that we'll be looking at is that our hope and our confidence is in a sovereign God, period. Today we're beginning a series that will walk us through the Apostles' Creed. And for those of you who have been maybe reared in non-Baptist circles, you probably have been accustomed to reciting this. There's some Baptists, more and more Baptists are growing more comfortable with it. Um, but certainly, as we walk through the Apostles' Creed, it's, I think, one of uh, the blessings that the church has experienced throughout the history of its existence to have a statement like this that summarizes our faith in a biblically accurate manner. You know, as we look at the Apostles' Creed, it's the oldest creed, one of the oldest creeds, and it has served as the basis for many other creeds. You say, well, creed, what, fill me in, what does creed mean? Well, the word creed comes from a Latin word, credo, which means I believe. Simply put, a creed is a summary, in our context, a summary of the church's faith. Various creeds have been written and Especially in the early church, we have seen the, the production or the, the, the establishment of various creeds. For example, you have the Nicene Creed in the 300s or so that was written uh, helping to bring clarity on the church's view of the Trinity. The Chalcedonian Creed that focused on the person of Christ seemed like that Creeds were often a tool that were used to respond to error to help clarify what the Bible teaches about the Christian faith and about the gospel. And obviously, as Christians, we would say that our authority does not rest in a creed. Our authority rests in the Word of God, and that is absolutely true. The Bible alone, sola scriptura, the Bible alone is our authority sufficient. Creeds and confessions have been helpful tools that are not authoritative. They're not binding things that, that, that hold authority over us, but they've been helpful tools to help us define who we are to the world. The Apostles' Creed is believed to date back to the 2nd century. Some have said, well, the Apostles' Creed, the Apostles must have come up with it. Well, no, that's not the case. Kind of like John the Baptist, he must have been a Baptist, right? No. It was first believed to be established in Rome as a statement of doctrine for the church, and even used, at least the early parts of it, used as a baptism confession. This particular creed has been known historically as the Creed of Creeds. It communicates the essential points of the gospel necessary for salvation. In fact, the the usefulness of this creed has served the church for years, hundreds of years, in that it defines biblical Christianity. This is the, the statement of boundary, if you will, for evangelicalism. 
And so if, if you believe something that's contrary to the Apostles' Creed, you would be outside of the bounds of biblical Christianity. That's how we define cults. You can easily go to the Apostles' Creed and say, do you believe in these things? And they'll say, yeah, I believe in that, but not that. Well, they're outside of the bounds then of historical biblical Christianity. So that's why it's been a helpful tool. Not authoritative, helpful tool. The Bible is authoritative. I believe that the Apostles' Creed is a beautiful historical summary of the Christian faith and has served the church well throughout the ages. And so what we're going to do as we walk through over the next seven or eight weeks, we're going to walk through the various phrases of the Apostles' Creed. We're not going to preach the Apostles' Creed. We're going to preach the Bible. We're going to see why the Apostles' Creed is a summary of biblical Christianity, so we're going to turn our attention to the Scripture itself and allow the Bible as our authority to inform our understanding, which should be affirmed in the Apostles' Creed. In fact, I would say that the Apostles' Creed, the statements in the Apostles' Creed are non-negotiable definitions of biblical Christianity. These are not up for debate. This morning we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 11, as we consider the first phrase of the creed, which says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. This phrase establishes the fact, affirms the fact, the Bible establishes the fact, this phrase affirms the fact that there is a single God who created the world, and he alone has authority over his creation. And one way we could describe that is to say that we believe that God is sovereign, and that he alone is sovereign. I want us to unpack that from Isaiah chapter 46, and I want us to see this morning several important truths about God's sovereignty that the Bible gives us, so that as we're affirming things, whether affirming them vocally, affirming them through the reciting of a creed or a confession, we're not just affirming words, but these very truths that we find in Scripture are the very foundation for our existence and for our lives. And so when we talk about the sovereign God this morning, this is not merely intellectual practice or activity. But rather, this should serve as the very foundation and very hope of your existence because you're going to walk out of those doors today and everything out there is going to give you every kind of excuse to grow weary, to grow discouraged. And friends, you need strong assurance and a strong foundation on which to stand. So let's look at several important truths about God's sovereignty that we see from this passage, affirmed by others, as we consider the sovereign God this morning. First of all, let's look at this. Let's look at the truth, the fact that God's sovereignty is unique. Look at verse 9. In verse 8 he says, remember this. By the way, this is a command. Remember and stand firm. These are imperatives. So we're being called to action. Remember and stand. 
engage your mind and engage your heart, your feet, if you will, but your being. So this is, this is impacting us from two angles, your mind and your heart, that you remember and that you stand, that you, that you base your life on this fact. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. That is pretty clear. I am God and there is none like me. First line of the Apostles' Creed is a statement. I believe in God, not God's, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. There is no plural language in that phrase. Come to Isaiah 46. Earlier in the chapter, the Lord is describing that unlike the Babylonian gods who fell their devotees, this God, the true God, will fulfill all of his purpose in spite of the stubborn hearts even of his people. God's plans will prevail no matter what. And the reason that I say that God's sovereignty is unique is that because he alone is sovereign. You know, you hear language today that sovereign nations and sovereign this and sovereign that. Well, we know what they're describing, but friends, there is only one sovereign. And his name is Yahweh. He's the God of the Bible, the God of creation, the God of the universe. Just a quick newsflash, you're not sovereign, and nor am I. God is sovereign. He does not share this with anyone else. He alone rules the heavens and the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. That is an exclusive claim. God does not share his sovereignty with someone else. He alone is over this world. He alone has absolute power and authority over all creation. And he alone is able to do everything that he has determined. No one else has ever had, presently has, or will have authority as God does. It is unique to him alone. And yet there are many who would challenge that today. And not just today, but throughout the course of human history. Virtually all other religions would either deny this by their acceptance of many gods or the belief of an entirely different god. Friends, the Bible clearly teaches that God alone created the world and has sovereign authority over it. That is not true of Buddha, that is not true of Allah or Muhammad, that is not true of Joseph Smith, nor Lord Krishna or Shiva among the Hindus, no one else. None of these are even remotely close to him, or even compare to him. He alone stands as Lord Almighty. Love what Calvin said on commenting on this passage. He says that God wishes not only that he may be acknowledged, but that he alone may be acknowledged. And therefore, he wishes to be separated from all gods which men have made for themselves, that we may fix our whole attention on him. Because if he admitted any companion 
His throne would fall or shake, for there is either one God or there is none at all. God does not, friends, God does not coexist with another. He alone is sovereign. Earlier in Isaiah 44, see another glimpse of that. Verse 7, the Lord says, Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declare it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. God's sovereignty is unique. Second point of observation that we find from Isaiah 46 is that God's sovereignty is comprehensive. Look at verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. He begins now to briefly define just how sweeping his sovereignty is. Two pieces that I want you to see in this verse. Number one is that his sovereignty extends from eternity past to the future. God's hand is not shortened. He is sovereign now as he was before the first mountain was formed and just as sovereign as he will be when the new heavens and new earth are established. He does not change in verse 10, the Lord says, I am God, declaring the end from the beginning, ancient from, and from ancient times things not yet done. Not only, listen, not only does God know the end from the beginning, he ordains it. There are a lot of people who would, would come about and they would talk about that God is a God who has foreknowledge, that he knows things. Friends, he does not only know those things, he ordains all things. His foreknowledge is not just his awareness. Yes, he knows all things, but he is sovereign over every aspect of human life. He's pointing us back to his faithfulness. Look, he says, from ancient times, things not yet done. He's, he's looking back. He's talking about the ancient times, and, and, I, and I think what he's doing here, he's pointing us back to, to, to say, look at my track record. I've been faithful demonstrated this authority from ancient times. One man that certainly knew this reality was a man by the name of Joseph in Genesis. Joseph was the second youngest son to Jacob. And Jacob bestowed favor to Joseph, typically reserved for the firstborn. Joseph's brothers didn't take too kindly to him. You can read this account from Genesis 37 to, to, to chapter 50, or you can go watch The Prince of Egypt. But I would suggest the biblical version. Um, his brothers weren't too happy with him. Joseph had a dream that caused further division between him and his brothers. And so they, they get together and determine to put an end to Joseph. 
you know the story, if you've read the story, that he comes along to visit them and he falls into a pit. They fake his death. They ultimately sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. They go back and tell his father that he's died and they have his robe marked with blood and they say that he's died and his father is grieved and yet he's not dead, he's a slave in Egypt. Joseph ends up in Egypt in prison, but he ultimately finds favor with Pharaoh. And there's a whole lot of details that happen in there, but for overview purposes, Joseph ends up becoming second in charge in Egypt. Pharaoh has a dream, Joseph interprets it, and comes to re- it, it happens. There's a famine that comes, and Joseph predicted it, and he's put in charge, and he helps to preserve the people from starvation, and he goes from being a slave to being second in charge. And we know that at the end of the story, that Joseph is reunited with his father and brothers as they come seeking food during the famine, and, and they're ultimately reunited, and, and his brothers are feeling shameful for what they did to him, and his father is just amazed at, the what, at what has taken place. Now he thought his son was dead, now he's not, he's alive, he's been there all along, and, and he's, they're reunited, and, and Joseph says to his brothers in Genesis 50 verse 20, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. You had your evil plans, but God's sovereign, even over your evil plans. And he took evil things, and he brought about good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph understood that God was sovereign even over, even over the evil actions of people. That did not hinder him. We'd certainly not affirm that God is the author of evil, nor can he do evil, but evil cannot derail his sovereign purposes. We can look back to events like these and we can see the faithfulness of God so that when we are weary and discouraged in the face of our own trials, we are reminded that just as he did with Joseph when he was laying at the bottom of the pits or when he was first put on that that cart to be taken as a slave to Egypt, that God still reigns and God will accomplish his purposes because his sovereignty is comprehensive. Second point that we see is that it extends even over the good and the evil, and certainly that is affirmed in Joseph's story. Nothing can limit God's authority, not even the most evil actions of humanity. God is sovereign over all humanity and over all all actions. He can use good to bring about his purpose, and mysteriously enough, he can even use evil, as he did in Joseph's life, to bring about his greater, glorious purposes. People wrestle with this issue, and friends, it can be a hard one to fathom. And so, as we talked about in our equip class this morning, you can set yourself up as the authority and determine what you want to believe about this, or you can go to the authority of God's Word and see what the Bible says about this reality. You read Joseph's story, it's, it's clear God is sovereign over all of that. Go to Isaiah chapter 45, just the chapter before, and look at verses 5 through 7. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. 
Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Now look at verse 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Lamentations. Jeremiah, after the fall of Jerusalem, is lamenting and weeping over the city. In the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, we read this. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. Amos, prophet Amos in chapter 3 verse 6 says, Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster not come to a city unless the Lord has done it? We go to Acts, go to the New Testament. So that's Old Testament pastor. Well, we'll go to the New Testament. Let me read you about one of the most evil acts in human history. Go to chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verse 24. This is the believers, and several things are happening, and they're, 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 they're coming before, Peter and John are coming before the council, and so the, 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 they're ultimately released. And then they go to their friends and report what happened. And in verse 24, it says, When they heard it, they lifted their voices to God together and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand had predestined to take place. You see what he's saying there? These people killed Jesus. It's evil. But God, you predestined that. It was your plan to bring about redemption. God's sovereignty is over good and evil. For many of us, that simply blows our minds how God can work even through an evil act because he is not evil himself and yet bring good and glory to his name. Friends, he has done it time after time after time again. And that is why in the midst of the most evil of actions in this world today, you can have confidence because God is sovereign. You can look at anything you want to look at and still have hope. You say, well, that's, that's hard. Well, let me give you some options that you have. You can believe that evil and God exist and both have equal sway in the world. You can believe that. You won't get that from the Bible. So if you want to believe God is true and yet evil is sort of equal with him and they're duking it out, you go with that and see how much confidence that gives you. You can believe that God causes evil and thus conclude he's not good. That would be a terrifying reality if we lived in a world where we believe God exists, but he's a bad God. That would be terrifying. 
Or you can believe the Bible, which teaches that God is good and he is sovereign, even as he has permitted evil in this world in such a way that he neither causes it or commits it, but certainly able to use it to bring about his good purposes. God is not sitting back with his hands tied while he hopes things work out. We're not talking about the God of the deist. Where he just sort of, like a clockmaker, winds it up and sits it into motion and sort of watches how things go. I love what R.C. Sproul said. He said, there's not one maverick molecule in the universe. God is over it all. His sovereignty extends to how the creation is being upheld, to how nations and leaders rise and fall, the presence of sickness and disease, even to our very own salvation. God doesn't just set things in order and sit back and watch. He is actively involved in every part of his creation to secure his greater purposes for his honor and glory. I've been encouraged over the last weeks and months because I have heard multiple people in this congregation at this campus. People who are going through hell, if I can say that, on earth. Great turmoil in the midst of their tears and grief have looked at me and said, this stinks and this hurts, but God is suffering. Friends, if God's sovereignty wasn't comprehensive, I would not want to worship and follow him. Third, and finally, God's sovereignty is insurmountable. Verses 10, second part of verse 10 through 11. He said, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. He's talking about the rise of of, uh, Cyrus, the Persian leader who would come and overtake the Babylonians. And he says, I've, I've... the bird from the east, that's who he's referencing. And he said, listen, this is my plan. I've purposed. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Friends, the good news in, in all of this truth about the sovereignty of God is that God does have a plan. God does have a purpose. And everyone, and that is true for everyone he's created. And so no matter what happens to you or to me, no matter what Fox or CNN reports today, no matter how far we, we are stressed, no matter how far evil impacts our nation, our communities, and our world, no matter what happens, we can rest with the total assurance that the Lord is in control because he has said, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. As Job understood that. You're talking a man, about a man that that endured more evil than you can fathom. His children were taken from him. His wife stood against him. His livestock and his servants were gone. He was afflicted physically with sores. His friends abandoned him. And yet at the end of Job, 
He was able to say, I know, Lord, that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Even the evil king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4, even this evil king who had a run-in with the Lord, you can read about that, but this is, this is his conclusion after he exerts his pride and is humiliated. Verse 34, he says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And that's, that's oftentimes the case for us is that we simply need our reason to return to us because we've allowed events and allowed the world to, to remove truth and our reason. And, and when we're struggling, it's the reason that we need to return to, and it needs to return to us. He says, My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? None. God is unstoppable. Nothing can stop his purposes from prevailing, his gospel from advancing, his plans to unfold. No army, no nation, no terrorist, no leader, no sickness, no injustice, absolutely nothing. Now, I don't know what you may struggle with today or what you may fear or the pain that you've may experienced or the weariness that, that may come to you or the anxiousness that you may feel. And when I look at the world in which we live, there's, there's certainly a lot of that. Talking to someone recently about just fear. Watching the events unfold in our world and they're just fearful. Friends, one thing remains as the bedrock to my soul in the midst of all of this, and it is the fact that God is sovereign. He is. As we close this morning, I want to read a quote from Charles Spurgeon because I think he summarizes it quite well. And he was a much better preacher than I am. So let me read what he said about the sovereignty of God. He said this, There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained afflictions, that sovereignly overrules, sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings. I love that, worldlings. No truth of which they have made such a football as the great stupendous doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his almonry to dispense alms and bestow blessings. They will allow him 
to be in his workshop, to fashion worlds and make stars. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof or light the lamps of heaven or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures gnash their teeth. And when we proclaim an enthroned God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter, then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on the throne is not the God they love. But it is God upon the throne we love to preach. And it is God upon the throne whom we must trust. Let's pray. Lord, if you were not sovereign, you would be nothing. If you were not God the Father Almighty, all-powerful, omnipotent, all-knowing, you would be nothing, Lord. You would not be God. But Lord, we realize today, based upon what you've revealed in your word about yourself, Based upon what we even see in creation, Lord, we know that you are the Lord. We are firm today. We believe today that you are the God of creation, the God of this universe. Lord, there's not, as we said earlier, there's not even a random renegade molecule out of place apart from your sovereign authority. Jesus even said, Lord, that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your knowledge. So Lord, I ask that as we have heard your word, as we have heard these things, God, that we would be affirmed, reaffirmed even in the truth of who you are. That our hearts would be flooded with encouragement that our weak bodies and souls would be re-energized with strength. That our fears would turn to trust. That our cries of despair would turn to songs of joy. Because, Lord, you are on your throne. And nothing, nothing, can change and thwart your purposes. So Father, would you, would you draw our hearts to you? Would you place under our feet the firm foundation of your authority, of your sovereignty? And Lord, when we're tempted, when we are tempted to grow fearful or discouraged or anxious, God, that we would remember as so many in this congregation do, that we would remember that you are sovereign. Lord, there may be some in this room that don't believe it. There may be some in this room, Lord, that, that struggle with this truth and this reality. There may be some in this room that, that are even questioning the validity of any of this. And Father, I'm glad they're here. And I would ask that you would 
show yourself to them in such a way that their hearts would be melted, that their pride would melt. They would be brought humbly to you, realizing that you alone are God. Father, would you have your way in our hearts now? As we stand to sing and as we prepare to dismiss, Lord, would you have your way as we sing, as we leave, as we go out into this world, Lord, would we remember today and would we remember this week that you are a God that cannot be stopped. Nothing or no one can stop you, Lord. And that should give us all the confidence in the world. So, Lord, help us to rejoice in that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.